Astronomy Cast, episode 429, Living on Mars. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of the Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Good. Another episode to continue our mini-series on the Red Planet. Uh, who knows how many episodes we will do until we get bored of it. And sometimes I can get bored of things very quickly, and other times I, I can just be entertained for years. So, But it's Mars. It's Mars. Mars is awesome. Uh, were there any more announcements? Um, so I think this will come out before we are in, Sa- I am in San Francisco. So on September, I believe it's the 14th, if that's a Wednesday, um, there is a meetup scheduled in San Francisco at Rosa Mondays in the Mission District. Uh, it's for CosmoQuest Astronomy Cast. Uh, it's listed on universe.com. So if you go to universe.com and search on CosmoQuest, and San Francisco, um, it will pull up, and it's a great place with craft beer and sausage and big wooden tables we can sit around and talk science at. That sounds great. Sorry, I won't be there. Uh, we'll miss you. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So when Elon Musk announced plans to send humans to Mars, he conveniently left out one important aspect: how are we supposed to survive on a place this hostile to life? Seriously. Mars sucks, and it's going to take some impressive techniques and technologies to make it on the red planet. I'm not sure you're aware of this, Pamela. Mars, Mars is just awful. Yeah, well, the whole universe is trying to kill us. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's one of these things where Mars, it's, it's more hostile than Earth. No atmosphere, no magnetosphere, but... Given the grand scheme of deadliness of our entire universe, it's not that bad. So Mars is just mostly awful as opposed to a death zone. It's still a death zone. No, I think it's as opposed to like instantaneously lethal. It's a slow death zone as opposed to an instant death zone. Right, okay. All right, so let's before we kind of get into how we're going to actually survive on Mars, let's sort of set the stage and just ta- talk about how awful Mars is. So, first of all, it's cold enough that, like, dry ice freezes out of the atmosphere. Yeah, we mentioned this in, in, in last week's episode that it snows uh, carbon dioxide in the wintertime. So it does occasionally get up above freezing for water, but that's only occasionally, only at special latitudes. But given the fact that there's such low air pressure, any water that happened to be around would um, essentially boil off instantly. Okay, so hold on. We're just going to keep a list here somewhere. So the temperatures are, they go from really cold to so cold Carbon dioxide freezes right out of the air and falls like snow. And you don't want that. Yeah, that would be fairly accurate. All right. Uh, The air pressure, 1% the thickness of Earth air pressure. So if you tried to breathe it, you couldn't because you couldn't keep the air pressure in your lungs. And it's carbon dioxide, which is no good. And and so you're talking if you have exposed skin, it pretty much instantly bruises. Not as instantly as in outer space, but fast enough that you're still hating everything. 
Right, but if you were dropped out onto the surface of Mars, all the air would go out of your lungs pretty much instantaneously, explode them if you hadn't sort of breathed out before you stepped out onto the surface of Mars. You'd get the bends. You get the yeah, yeah, you get the bends and you would fall unconscious within 15 seconds, 30 seconds and you then have, die. You have longer than that. It, it's actually one of these things where if if you hyperventilate yourself to overoxygenate your blood, completely exhale and make a mad dash and you happen to be in an equatorial latitude so it's not too bad, you you got until you you run out of oxygen in your blood. So right. it's as long as you can hold your breath underwater, basically. Well, no, because you can't hold your breath, right? So the air is all over your mm, lungs. You've only got the air that's in your... In, in your, your bloodstream. In your bloodstream, yeah. But if you think about it, if you're trying to sink yourself under the water, a lot of times people will exhale when you're stupid little kids trying to stay underwater as long as you can. So we're at the stupid little kid staying underwater, not the adult with a lung full of air yeah. underwater. Okay. Um, basically, you're good until your body's like, I must inhale, and you inhale essentially nothing. Okay. So low air, cold temperatures, and then a, like a little slower than that, uh, nasty radiation. Yeah. So, so here on Earth, we have a thick atmosphere that protects us from extreme ultraviolet to everything more deadly than that. And everything with a shorter wavelength than ultraviolet is more deadly than ultraviolet. So we go from just, you're going to get skin cancer, to your DNA is destroyed now. It, it's not as bad as, as being like in the open space between Mars and Earth, but it's still going to kill you, given time and right. cancer. Yeah. Now, and we'll talk about ways that you can mitigate this, but in general, if you're out on the surface of Mars for long periods of time, you're going to accumulate a lot of radiation. And if there's big solar storms, you're not going to enjoy your time out there. Death. Bad radiation. And then low gravity, which sounds like fun, but it's actually going to be a total pain. Yeah, because low gravity, we're still fully coming to terms with all of the effects, but it definitely causes decalcification of your bones. And it seems to muck with a whole bunch of other different bodily things, such that if you don't constantly exercise, you end up with muscle atrophy, and it's, it's just bad news. So we know that the zero gravity-ish of being on the International Space Station has consequences. You have to exercise a lot. And you're dying while it's happening. Like you exercise a lot, but you're still dying in space, in microgravity, right? You're putting it off, but you are not preventing the destruction that's happening to your body by being in microgravity. And so we're not yet sure just how bad being on Mars will be since there is gravity and you have more room to wander. But nonetheless, bad for you. Bad. Yeah, we have no idea still. Like we know microgravity is death. We know that Earth gravity is fine, and we don't know where the dividing line is between those two numbers. At 38% the force of gravity on Mars, it could be lethal over longer periods of time, maybe a couple of years. We don't know if children can be gestated properly and born into that environment. These are still unknowns right now. More experiments required. And, and there's experiments that they do up on the space station looking at how plants are affected, how animals born in space and gestated in space are affected. 
But I mean, at the end of the day, human beings are not rats and the experiments we do with mice and invertebrates and other critters, a zebra danio isn't going to totally reproduce the effects that a human being is going to have. So low temperature, low air pressure, bad radiation, bad gravity. So these are really, and then we've got a few, like a, just a collection of things, like the day's a little longer. That one I don't think will try and kill yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I'm the, good with days being slightly the longer. The soil's, soil's made of poison. That's a problem. Yeah. Wash it. No, you just wash it. Well, I mean, it's basically a giant Superfund site. So <laughs> whole planet, yeah. Whole planet. So, so if you think about all the stuff that has to take place to clear up a Superfund site, to, to clean the dirt, test the dirt, clean the dirt some more, test the dirt, how deep do you have to dig, how deep do you have to clean, it's death. I'm just going to keep saying that this episode. Yeah, yeah, it's death. Okay, so I think we've set the stage here that – you know, if you want a place that's a thousand times easier to live at, go on and head to Antarctica. Feel free to, you know, set up your tent on Antarctica and you are living in an absolute tropical paradise compared to Mars. But the adventure of colonizing another planet is pretty exciting. So what can we do to compensate and deal with all of these issues? So one of the things that deeply amuses me is, is at the end of the day, it all seems to come down to fish tanks and tilapia. <laughs> it's, so so we, we would need to have a study food source that is diverse. We would need to have oxygenation, all of those sorts of things going on. And so you need a system that can produce in a complete closed ecosystem. It won't be perfect. There will be losses. You'll have to replenish water. It, you have to come with starter food. But to get that ecosystem going, you essentially start with water, plankton, add tilapia. Tilapia eats plankton. Tilapia eats any invertebrates that you end up in the water. Invertebrates are good in general. Throw in some snails. They'll reproduce madly. That's what snails do. Then set up a vertical uh, water system that has all of the fish poopy water flowing over the roots of plants. Um, and now you can start growing vegetables. You eat the invertebrates. You eat the tilapia. You eat the plants. And now you start producing your own waste. And your own waste can start going to, well, if you watched Mars, you know, you clean the dirt, you clean the dirt, you clean the dirt, you then add poop to the dirt. Um, this is also going to be a very poopy episode, it turns out. The, the whole goal is to build an expanding ecosystem that produces food, produces oxygen, and purifies water as it goes. Solving this challenge is going to be the same wherever we go across the whole solar system. Yes. You know, you and I are both quite partial to the idea of O'Neill cylinders and hollowing out metal asteroids and spinning them up and living on the inside of those. But it's that it's going to be the same challenge, which is that you need water, you need tilapia, you need <laughs> phytoplankton, and you just need to keep building up your ecosystem to larger and larger animals, depending on how much sunlight you're able to, to do. So, so... The good news is you do have gravity on Mars that can generate, that you can use to keep your water down yes. and have your plants grow up. And chances are that should work okay in the Martian gravity. 
and and the crazy thing is we can't actually just use sunlight you have to actually now here's where the next challenge comes so i i start with don't starve probably because it's a good place to starve and it's u.s thanksgiving so there's a turkey cooking in the crock pot in the background making me think of food yeah someone was mentioning in the chat mm, thanksgiving tilapia <laughs> we don't do tilapia in this house after an unfortunate tilapia incident that shall not be spoken of but it, it it's one of these things so so you figure out the food you're not going to starve but then there's this whole electricity thing going on that you need and you figure you start with a good radiothermal generator something powered through nuclear isotopes going through half lives generating heat powering your your power source that gets you started and you get grow lights growing but but that's not a scalable system unless you happen to like start mining radioisotopes on mars which that's a whole lot of effort so now you start putting out solar panels now the sunlight on mars is is different than the sunlight on earth and that whole radiation thing isn't going to be stopped by the roof of a greenhouse. So you actually need grow lights. We are looking to learn from every pot grower who ever grew pot in their mama's basement. <laughs> right. They right. have Marijuana, the skills. Marijuana growers, you are the future of, uh, of staying alive in space. And so, so you start your solar farm outside. You start your veg and tilapia and plankton and invertebrate farm on the inside. And the problem is you now need an inside that doesn't kill you due to radiation. So, I mean, it, it's kind of, we didn't do an episode on how you get to Mars because there's a lot of problems so totally not solved that that, that would be a whole lot of speculative fiction going on. Well, next week we're talking about getting back from Mars. Maybe we'll include getting to Mars. We'll talk about getting to and from Mars. So the problem that I'm just going to assume somebody has solved is how to build that habitat you lived in to get to Mars so that it's radiation proof. So you start out in this hab, but it's probably small because it didn't want to weigh that much if you were trying to use energy, use fuel to get it all the way to Mars. Now, you want to expand beyond your initial food source. You want to expand beyond your initial safe habitat. And now you have to become the mole men of Mars because it turns out dirt is really good at protecting you from radiation. So that whole living in the basement idea, it's more like living in a cave, living in a lava tube, living underground with that dirt protecting you from radiation. And here the cool idea comes where we know there's a lot of subsurface ice on Mars. So maybe you dig yourself a nice hole, extract the water from the soil, and then blow up an inflatable habitat inside. And now you have a nice friendly walled, not dirt walled containment vessel for you, your tilapia, your plants, and your electronics, and hopefully a few other humans. Right. So, so Martian, they're going to be tilapia farmers and they're going to be, as you say, molemen. They're going to be digging into the ground. They're going to be taking the Martian regolith. They're going to be turning it into concrete. They're going to be building interesting and more exotic uh, buildings and they're going to be digging down. Ideally, if there are lava tubes, they're going to be able to use those lava tubes as a way to kind of get a head start, less excavation required. But they're going to want a lot of 
excavation machinery, backhoes, things like that to be able to move around on the surface of Mars and just, you know, push it all around. Minecraft that place. And and this is where you really have to send a whole lot of stuff ahead of time to the Martian surface. You need to go land, well, your fleet of robotic backhoes, essentially. So take curiosity and give that thing a much bigger claw and let it start digging holes big enough for itself. Um, I mean, ideally, what you actually need is one of those like spinny, chompy things that looks like a worm from Dune that they use to build the channel and other giant underground tunnels around the world. But we have to land those successfully, get the process started remotely, and then have the humans follow behind. It's interesting. Uh, in some of the follow-up questions, like when Elon Musk was announcing his plans to to send the, Ma- the Mars transportation system, to send the BFR to Mars and, and send groups of 100 colonists at a time, eventually hundreds of thousands every Mars window. Uh, he figured once Mars gets to about a million people, it should be a self-sustained, self-contained habitat that's completely separate from planet Earth, that it doesn't need Earth anymore. But until then... What are the what are the Martians going to need from Earth? This is where we're not sure how well that food ecosystem will it be completely self-contained? Are we going to have to worry about well that that plankton doesn't do so well under the artificial sunlight or we don't have enough plankton growing to support the invertebrates and to support the tilapia? Do we need fish food delivered on a regular basis essentially? Can we in a successful manner have enough solar panels or do we need regular reinforcements of solar panels and the batteries that hold the charge? And these are still technologies that we're working on. Anyone who's, who's had an iPhone they refuse to replace or an Android they refuse to replace know that eventually you hit the point where your phone is just like, dude, I'm not going to hold my charge any longer. Replace me. And it's that battery issue that we are going to have to worry about. It's the, we're still learning what's the maximum lifespan that a solar panel works at a high enough operational level. And then there's tech. They're not going to have circuit boards getting built. They're not going to have all the manufacturing going on. Where is cloth going to come from? I mean, there's a lot of people that talk about the next step past tilapia for protein that isn't a veg is is goats because goats produce fur, goats produce milk, goats, you can eat them. Um, so goat is kind of the perfect critter other than being very smart and very grumpy. But how long does it take to get to the point that you have the cloth, you have the manufacturing, you have all the things that we totally take for granted just the fact that I'm sitting at a wooden desk, how, how, how do you, you're clearly going to be 3D printing the bejesus out of everything. So you need the stuff for your 3D printer. Yeah. Earth is still ideally going to still be here. You know, if the worst case scenario hasn't happened and earth is still a place, then the discoveries that get made on earth, the plans can be sent to Mars and they can 3D print them. So in theory, if the manufacturing gets good enough, you know, the iPhone 12 gets released on earth and the plans, the specs are sent to Mars and they 3D print their version of the, of the iPhone 12 and, and they've got iPhone 12s as well. But as you said, you know, circuit boards, like the, the 
3D printing, which is currently just kind of a hobby, the future really will depend and rely on on us being able to to be able to manufacture things remotely this way. And then and the same thing as well is that whatever we're missing, we can put in cargo ships and send them to Mars. You know, it only takes a couple of years. And so if they'll build a big shopping list, like we need more goats, <laughs> we need more whatever, and and every two years another shipment will come and and will replenish, and they'll learn over time the things that they're missing to to be able to be a lot more self sustaining. But and, and it's really only six months to get there. So you can imagine setting up a system where you have this set of constantly moving vehicles that you dock with and undock with going again back to the movie The Martian, where you don't have the power loss of matching speeds with Mars. You don't have the power loss of matching speeds with Earth. You just have this this ship that you dock and undock, fill it up at Earth, empty it out at Mars, and and keep doing the circuit every six months. There, you know, we've talked about ways to mitigate everything, but there's really one problem that is going to be really difficult that we can't dig we can't resupply which is this low gravity so what if it turns out that 38% gravity is lethal to human beings over long periods of time what can we do about that so so this is where i'm going to go back to one of my favorite sci-fi authors kim stanley robinson and in one of his more recent books he put forth the idea that every couple of years the human beings have to come back to Earth for a period of time to let their body get back to equilibrium. And that without that constant return to Earth, it may just be that human beings can't quite make it. And and there's stopgap measures. There's the idea of sleeping in essentially whirling compartments where you can imagine everyone lined up along the walls at essentially a carnival ride getting spun up sleeping like that and then it spins back down when it's time to get up one idea um on pbs space time they were talking about this a couple of uh, months ago about having some kind of huge train that just goes around and around and around and the train is at a bit of an angle and so you get you you take that the centripetal force that you're going to feel from the train uh, you or is it centrifugal? It's the centrifugal force that you get with the train, and then you match that with the partial gravity from Mars to equal out to 100. So you're going to be on this sort of curved track, and it's just going to go around and around. But just imagine the scale of engineering of that. The irony is that space, just you know, a few hundred kilometers above your head in some kind of orbital facility like Phobos or whatever, if it's turning and is able to generate that artificial gravity, that's going to be a place you could replenish. So you could come back to Earth, as you said, or maybe you go up to Phobos, spend a year or a month or whatever in the in the full gravity of the rotating Phobos. But, but again, spinning up something that is a rubble pile may be a bad idea, but we can just build a space station. Just build a space station. 16, is it 16 Psyche, the, the uh, metallic asteroids in the asteroid belt? You move that so that it's going around Mars, and then that becomes a, a place that you can go and, and rest and recuperate. But that's the part that's, you know, if we can't solve this problem, it's going to make living on Mars really, really difficult. And there's no way to fix the lack of gravity on Mars. And, and we really don't know if this is the kind of thing that 
has some weird alternative biochemical solution where we're going to find ourselves using CRISPR to edit our genes to add in things that change how we process, lose, and replenish calcium. We don't know if there's some magical hormone combination that's going to be discovered. The solutions to these kinds of things could take any form. And here is where occasionally you're waiting for that next genius to have that breathtaking idea that changes the paradigm. And it, it may be that slow incremental advancement isn't going to get there and we need a giant paradigm shift. Yeah, and there was a great book. Oh, I don't even remember who did it. Um, maybe it was an Asimov story. But anyway, it was this idea that, I'm sure someone in the chat will remember it, that as you said, you know, that we don't try to change Mars. We try to, we change ourselves. We meet Mars halfway. Yeah. That, that we can, as you say, really genetically engineer a different race of human beings and life that is equipped to deal in that kind of lower gravity. And you can imagine this, this far, far future where we are genetically different from the other kinds of humans that are around in the solar system, that there are the people who live on Earth, there's the people who live in space, there's the people who live on different worlds depending on their gravity, and they have different genetic structure adapted for that environment. And, and you can imagine as a starting point, again, stealing ruthlessly from Kim Stanley Robinson, everyone needs to go read everything he has ever written. Um, he, he puts forward the idea that perhaps you start by finding lichen adjusted to extraordinarily high altitudes and see if you can adjust it to living on Mars. Um, now, here we're sort of admitting to the idea of completely destroying all potential microbial or other life on Mars, but life adapts, life finds a way. And it is potential that life as we know it would die horribly on the surface of Mars. But perhaps we can get to having life as we don't currently know it that's perfectly happy to be radiated. Yeah, if I understand the lichens that come from uh, Antarctica and such, they're, they would still die and suffer horribly on the surface of Mars, but it's not that far. They're, they wouldn't require a ton of modifications to be able to handle the, the drier habitat, as long as you give them water, but you could you know, handle that drier habitat and be able to, to survive on Mars. So we actually could be very close to be able to make this happen. It's just that whole life is we aren't alive currently that, that is always the sticking point because each of us want to do it rather than imagining the edited humans that might do it in the future. Or, of course, if we end up merging with our robots, then <laughs> they don't care. So in that, you know, when we join with our robots, then our robot bodies will be able to survive out on the surface of Mars, no problem. Yeah. Which is just another reason to, uh, you know, merge with our robots. And now I want to go watch Battlestar Galactica again. <laughs> right. All right. Well, thanks, Pamela. Next week, we're going to talk about getting from and maybe to Mars. Sounds great, Fraser. All right. See you next week. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com, tweet us at astronomycast, like us on Facebook, or circle us on Google+. 
We record the show live on YouTube every Friday at 1.30pm Pacific, 4.30pm Eastern, or 20.30 GMT. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org or our YouTube page. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Earle and the show was edited by Chad Weber.